Our last speaker is Ray Lendowitz from California, from LA, but he also spent a great deal of time in Boston. So it, it continues to roll on. Rafe is going to talk, discuss the data-free zone, tough cases in HIV prevention and STI, STI management, right? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. And, and I'm going to invite our panelists to come up here also. It's always really treacherous to be the person standing between people and departure. Um, so as the panel is assembling, I'm going to ask you all a favor. Can everyone just stand up for just a second? Just one second. Okay, one jumping jack. Okay, now sit down. Excellent. That was probably the most popular thing we did all day, right? Evaluate that. Okay, so um, I, I'm going to be talking about some challenging cases that come up in PrEP management and STI treatment. This is not an inclusive or uh, a complete or exclusive uh, uh, list of conundrums that come up. Um, if people think of uh, challenging cases, please write them down and we can try and get to them at the end. I do want to introduce Dr. Susan Cohn from North, Northwestern here in Chicago, who's the one person on the panel who's not yet known to some of you. Um, Susan uh, is a good friend from uh, the DAIDS Therapeutics Networks, and, uh, and we're glad to have her join. Um, so the title of this, this talk is, is The Data-Free Zone, and, and it, that's not really a fair title. It's not really data-free, it's data-poor. Um, uh, data is evolving, um, and, and so you know, what's true today may not be true tomorrow. So you know, we are learning a lot about the, these nuances of complicated prep cases and STIs, um, so, so, uh, so we'll just take it as what's, what's true today. So these are our panelists, and I mentioned Susan Cohn has joined us, which is great. These are my financial disclosures, um, and these are our objectives. We're going to talk about some complicated PrEP cases, some uh, problems with HIV diagnosis, um, as well as the state of the science of the STI prevention. I'm just going to remind people, um, you know, because when PrEP first was approved, um, by the FDA in 2012, a lot of people said, that's a really bad idea. Um, you're going to use an antiretroviral as a regular medication and people are HIV uninfected. There's toxicity, there's cost. It requires monitoring. What are you thinking? Um, and I have to admit, I was one of those people. I thought it was a treacherous idea. And of course, you know, the, you know, the last laugh was had by the scientists who thought about this. And it was really quite a thoughtful progression of how it came to be, right? We know from the early days of the epidemic about post-exposure prophylaxis, right? You get an exposure to blood or body fluids um, in an occupational setting or in a, in a, in a non-occupational setting through, through um, uh, infectious body fluids um, or sharing of injection drug works. And if you use a, 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 
a full antiretroviral regimen as rapidly as possible after that exposure, the data suggests that you can reduce your risk of acquiring HIV by 80% or more, right? And then the data is based on case control studies, and we're never going to have randomized data about the efficacy of post-exposure prophylaxis. But the animal models clearly state and clearly identify that, like, you know, when in cardiovascular medicine, there's this you know, door to needle time, right? Someone's having a heart attack. You have to get the TPA or get them into a cath lab as quickly as possible to improve survival. So with PEP, the animal models strongly suggest there's an exposure to dose time effect, right? The sooner you get the antiretrovirals in after the exposure, the more likely you are to have efficacy. Now the guidelines say you should do it within 72 hours, but the bottom line is you should do it as quickly as possible, right? So we want to minimize the time from the exposure to the dose to maximize the prophylactic efficacy. So of course, what is the best way to um, think back to your calculus to take the limit as time from exposure to dose, I've lost you all already, haven't I? Um, and, and make it go to zero, right? Is when you have the medication on board before the exposure ever takes place. So scientifically, it actually sort of made sense. And I'm not gonna go through this in detail because I think you're all intimately familiar with the large clinical trials that support PrEP efficacy, starting with IPREX and MSM, confusing 42% efficacy. And my model here is the, um, it's Christmas time or holiday time at your favorite church or bazaar um, or synagogue, bazaar, right? Or mosque, right? And, and, and they put the thermometer up outside you know, your place of worship and they fill it up as they do fundraising. So that's, that's the schema of this, of this data slide, right? So IPREX, 42% efficacy, confusing, right? Just use a condom and forget about it if it's 42% effective, right? Femprep in women in Sub-Saharan Africa stopped early, didn't work. Okay, maybe it works in MSM, but not in women. TDF2, heterosexual men and women in Botswana. Okay, works really well in heterosexual males. A good point estimate in, in women, but it was not statistically significant. Partners prep, wow, look, both Truvada, TDF-FTC, and TDF alone work for both heterosexual men and women, serious discordant relationships. Really exciting. We're going to confirm that in the voice trial in the lower left. <laughs> Completely negative. Brief story. I'll be really quick here. When I made this slide and I, made, I put the voice trial on there, I was really struggling. How do you depict a negative point estimate, a point estimate towards harm? Um, and I thought, do I, do I put a shadow? Do I flip the figure upside down? Um, um, do I put a puddle under them? And, and my boss, Judy Courier at UCLA said, definitely not a puddle. Um, <laughs> but the reason she said that is the first iteration of this picture, I was using red, not blue. <laughs> I will tell you that I keep a version of this in yellow at home because it makes me giggle, but that's not what... <laughs> Okay, confusing though, data is very confusing, right? Okay, so then proud study, MSM in, um, in the UK, immediate versus deferred, TDF, FTC, highly effective, stopped early, and then hypergay, right? This on-demand prep strategy, two on one, we'll talk more about that. This strategy where if I know that this Saturday, I'm gonna be having condomless sex, two to 24 hours before that event, I'm gonna take a double do dose of TDF, FTC, then 24 hours later, I'm gonna take a single dose of TDF-FTC. Then 24 hours after that, I'm gonna take a third single dose of TDF-FTC and then I'm gonna stop if I should be so lucky as to be able to predict that I'm gonna to plan 
to have sex on Saturday. Um, but this was done in France and Canada, which is why the beret is on that guy. But also, <laughs> highly effective, right? 86% reduction in a placebo-controlled trial. So all the data conflicting, confusing consumers and providers really trying to make sense out of this. And of course, there's two important factors in this, right? The first is adherence. You don't take the drug, it doesn't work. And when you look at biomarkers of adherence in all of these studies, there's a clear association between F preventative efficacy um, and, and biomarkers of adherence. And then you couple that with differential drug penetration, that is the drugs that are in um, in that particular combination, TDF and FTC, differentially get into rectal mucosa um, and cervical vaginal mucosa. And so you require um, a lot better adherence, more religious, if you will, adherence um, to get vaginal protection. Nearly every day is required to get high levels of protection. But for rectal protection, that's really the difference. It's not really men versus women, right? It's rectal protection versus vaginal protection. Um, for rectal protection, there's more forgiveness. You can get in as few as four doses per week on average and still retain high levels of protection. So PrEP is straightforward. If all your cards in the deck sort like they should, right? If patients read the directory of how to take care of themselves and they're perfectly healthy, right? If they have creatinine clearance greater than 60, they don't have problems with early bone loss or traumatic fractures, they don't have hepatitis B, and they come in like clockwork for their every three month visits, which everybody does, right? And of course, they've met limited medical comorbidities. But things go off the rails, and it's, we know it's very safe. You compare um, adverse events in active versus placebo or control arms in all of these studies. It's it really a safe drug. Um, creatinine clearance um, changes being the only statistically significant difference um, when you look at this sort of combination of, of studies in aggregate. Um, but, but things kind of go off the rails when it gets complicated, right? So the first case we're going to talk about, and this is going to be lots of fun. We'll go sort of down the row and see what people think. Um, so everyone get your electronic devices out. A 50-year-old man has type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease stage 3, and hypertension, recently started a new relationship with an HIV-infected man and is seeking advice on how best to avoid HIV infection. His partner, who is HIV-infected, admits to struggling with taking ART regularly, but he says he's mostly adherent like a little bit pregnant, right? Um, and does not like to use condoms. One month after initiating pre-exposure prophylaxis with TDF-FTC, creatinine clearance has decreased to 55. Urinalysis is normal and you recheck because you never make clinical decisions based on a single measurement and it's further decreased to 50. So the question is, what do you advise him? Really? I don't get the Broadway show tunes? I suppose it's sort of topical. There's a new Elton John movie out, right? Okay. Okay. So we have 55% uh, saying switch to TAF FTC, which means everybody was paying attention to Dr. Iran's discussion of the DISCOVER trial earlier. Um, since, since Joe, you talked about it, do you want to weigh in first? Yeah, I, yeah, sure. Um, um, so I think the that's a, a reasonable thing. I, I would actually talk about 
how often they have sex and what's going on in their relationship. And because it, it's possible there's a safer alternative if they really have sex infrequently. Because I do think that the 211 works. Um, uh, but um, I think if they're having sex regularly and, and um, uh, uh, given the description of the partner, um, I, I think that's a, a reasonable alternative. I, I think you, you could wait one more month, he's not going to die in one more month. So you could make sure this isn't some sort of blip and then crap. So um, uh, I, I think that, that those three things are reasonable. I think maybe just a little bit more anyone else eric no, i was just gonna say and you know i think you alluded to the fact that we make this a lot harder than it needs to be based on the guidelines and the follow-up and things but you know every patient is different and this is one that you would want to follow more closely i would agree that probably going to TAF ftc makes sense but still needs pretty close follow-up all right, so so we're we're going to get to that whole discussion, right? So JAF FTC is not FDA approved for PrEP yet, right? You know, we have one large randomized trial that showed non inferiority, um, and it's currently before the FDA or is about to be before the FDA. So we're going to have to see what happens and what decisions insurance companies are are or aren't going to make. So I think that's going to be interesting. But for the moment. Let's let's pretend that it was available and that costs were not an issue, and 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 let's debate. Let's just debate what what the other options might be, and then of course let's then come back to the fact that cost is very much going to be an issue. Mike, yeah. uh, I'd like to say maybe find another partner, and therefore you don't have to worry about it. But <laughs> that's probably not. That's probably not okay, is it? Okay, that that yeah. falls under hashtag fired when you say right, that. Exactly. Right. No, I mean it is a conundrum. It really is, and I think they hit the key points. Right. Right. So, so I think you know I think there are a number of of reasonable options up here. Um, uh, you know, you know I think switching to TAF FTC, you know, might be a reasonable option. We'll talk about those data in a second. I do want to just make one observation that you know dose reducing the TDF FTC to three times per week is something that we do in HIV treatment. Right, but it's really important to remember that there are no data for doing that in the prevention space. Right, I would have a little bit of anxiety about doing that. Now, you might say, well, you know that for rectal protection, an average of four doses per week, even with a normal creatinine clearance, is okay. So if you dose reduce it, it's probably okay. But all of a sudden, there's a lot of probabilities in there. And I probably wouldn't do that. Um, and I do think continuing and rechecking is, is certainly a reasonable approach. Remember that people take all sorts of other nephrotoxins, right? Um, you know, people take all sorts of bodybuilding supplements, creatine, right, can, can artificially, you know, elevate your creatinine and obscure these calculations. People take NSAIDs all the time, all sorts of other things. You might want to sort of, you know, go through that a little bit more meticulously and, and make sure that's not... Um, an issue. Um, I do think it's worth mentioning that there's been um, some some interesting st studies that predict who are going to have challenges with decreased creatinine clearance in the prep space. And you know, it's it's exactly who you would expect. It's people you know who are older, over the age of fifty, and people who started with a creatinine clearance less than ninety. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. And those are predictors of people having dropping creatinine clearance. I would remind you that you know, in most of the clinical trials, when people did drop their creatinine, and you stopped it and creatinine rebounded most of the time. Um, uh, and this included people who uh, had uh, phosphate wasting 
um, uh, in, in the early trials, um, you were able to re-challenge people successfully and continue them on the same drug. So, you know, if it were to decrease and you gave them a hiatus, you could try re-challenge them after it returned to normal. Um, I do think uh, that it's also really important to remember that while we encourage people to be as adherent as they possibly can be to make the protection the most durable and reliable, that also is associated with more creatinine clearance declines. So that's not really a surprise, more drug, more exposure, more declines in creatinine clearance. Um, and, and so it's a double-edged sword with that particular product, isn't it? You want the best protective efficacy, so you're encouraging the most consistent dosing, but that also has been shown to be associated um, with more renal toxicity. And, and these are data from Monica Gandhi at UCSF who used hair and dried blood spot levels um, to use real biomarkers of how often on average people were dosing um, uh, per week. And, and I think that's something that we really wanna to keep in mind is there is that double-edged sword of adherence, the better, more durable protection, um, but the, the more toxicity. And here you can see parsed out into these groups of the average number of doses per week the trend in creatinine clearance, um, uh, and you can see clearly what happens as you go more towards the daily adherence here. Um, you know, Joe brought up the question of this two-on-one dosing, and until recently, um, there really were no data to suggest that this two-on-one dosing actually was any safer. And cross-study comparisons are always hazardous, um, and one needs to be careful when making them. Um, I'll come back to this in just a second. Oh, I took out, did we lose a slide? Um, I apologize, I think we lost a slide. Um, but um, the IPREX, uh, 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 sorry, the, the IPERGAY study uh, uh, did a subset analysis where they looked very specifically active versus placebo at declines in creatinine clearance over time. And in that IPERGAY study, there was not a difference between uh, changes in creatinine clearance trajectory in the people who received active TDF-FTC used in this two-on-one way and people who received the placebo. That is not true right, in the daily dosing studies, where daily dosing of active TDF-FTC clearly had greater declines in creatinine clearance than did daily dosing with placebo. So again, cross-study comparisons, hazardous, but that does suggest that in two-on-one dosing that there might be renal benefit. Mike, did you want to say something? Um, there, there, you know, other people always say, what about Fanconi syndrome? Can you re-challenge if there's Fanconi syndrome in PrEP? Well, first of all, Fanconi syndrome and, and these sort of wasting syndromes in PrEP, exceedingly rare. There's been, as far as I can find, one reported case in the literature. We talk about it a lot in the treatment literature with TDF, um, but, but this is the only case that I'm aware of that's been re reported in the prevention space. And this was in a study called CCTG 595, which was done at UCSD, of which Eric was actually a co-investigator um, on this study. And there was a 49-year-old participant who 12 weeks into daily oral TDF-FTC had a 25% drop in his creatinine clearance and hypophosphatemia with phosphate wasting. He was taken off drug and, and recovered, but he was not re-challenged. So it is something to keep in mind. And I probably would not re-challenge this participant with TDF-FTC. And, you know, someone's going to say, well, would you use TAF-FTC in this guy? And I don't think we have the answer to that. I 
probably would be okay trying it, but I would watch him carefully. I do think, though, that with this information, you would follow people who are older than 50, have a creatinine clearance under 90, um, or have a renal comorbidity like diabetes, hypertension, um, or uh, you know anything that might make you suspect that they're going to have chronic kidney disease on a more frequent schedule. For example, every three months when you do your regular um, HIV testing. Um, okay, um, Discover, Joe already presented you the primary data, so I'm not going to go through it again. It was shown to be non-inferior in the primary analysis with a very small number of infections. Most of the infection, well, the two infections that occurred in people who were durably taking each drug, one in each arm, um, are shown by the solid colored bars in this schema on the left. As Joe already mentioned to you, um, the hatched ones were folks um, who had uh, biomarker evidence of not taking drug um, uh, at high levels, and the black um, participants in the bars were people who actually um, turned HIV positive at week four. And you know, Joe, Joe did raise the question of why were those participants included in the primary analysis? And, and my understanding of the answer to why that is, is because baseline specimens were not stored to actually figure out if those were actually prevalent infections um, in the eclipse period at the time of study entry. They just turned positive by week four. So the presumption is that they were infected prior to exposure to study product, but that's not confirmable based on at least analyses that I've seen and samples that I've been told are available. So at least that's my understanding to that, to that question. But um, Joe, I don't think showed this slide, which is the renal safety um, of the TAF FTC product versus the TDF FTC product in PrEP. And you can see that um, there are actually increases in the estimated um, GFR in the TAF FTC treated participants in green in the left um, bar compared to decreases that it went down a little bit in the first 12 weeks then pretty much stabilized in the TDF um, FTC arm. So there, there, are, there is biomarker evidence of better renal safety as there was in HIV-infected um, participants in those treatment studies. So I do think that that's a real thing. I did actually have this slide. It just got out of order. Okay, great. We've already talked about that. Okay, next case. I call this broken dreams because I thought that was cute. Okay, a 35-year-old man reports having receptive anal sex with two to three different partners each month. He's eager to start PrEP. He was diagnosed with early osteoporosis, yes, at age 35, in 2015, and he has a history already of non-traumatic fractures. So the question is, you say to him, when he comes to you saying, I would like to start PrEP. That's what you say to him. Okay, let's see what people said. <laughs> there are fans of TAFFTC in the room. Um, okay, so no one wanted to start with TDFFTC alone. 65% said, let's do the TAFFTC. 10% um, said, let's, let's stay with the TDF-based regimen, but let's give uh, either vitamin D or vitamin D and calcium supplementation. And 25% said something else. And I'm going to guess what that something else was, which is basically don't do prep you know, find other methods of keeping yourself negative. Is that, is that what people are thinking? Yep, kind of. 
<laughs> okay, Judy. <laughs> Judy says use a condom. <laughs> Patients love it when you say that to them. Yeah. You haven't been in my bathroom. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, the thing with vitamin D and calcium, this person already has osteoporosis, so, and, and giving additional hits, you know, more injury, I would be reluctant to do that for, for this individual for that reason. Um, you know, the TAP FCC data, um, as we've seen in Discover and in the HIV treatment trials, is that there's less. It doesn't mean that there's none, right? So I think, you know, it's it still can affect bones, whether or not you want to do it. I think it's one of those discussions that you have to have with this individual. Um, one of the things, um, too, to consider with, with this individual, does he really have osteoporosis or does he have osteomalacia, right? He's young. That's unusual to be having osteoporosis at this age. Why did he have it? Did he have secondary causes? So I think there's a lot of missing information that would be more helpful. Oh, Judy, you're such a ringer always. Yes. <laughs> Joe. I would just say that I find out about the sex partners. I mean, it's, you know, every third weekend. And that might be a, a, a two-on-one scenario. Um, though I, I don't think, Jeff, given that that case would, would end up with a bone abnormality, but I actually don't know for sure. Uh, Judy, Judy, Judy might know better. Um, and uh, so, uh, but uh, but I agree. I think that um, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Susan, Dan, no, Eric, Mike. No, I think it's important to reassess them for sure, and also to do other testing. And if it, it turns out he has STIs or other reasons that might lure him to using condoms to help them with when those things, but these other hooks. To get into, you know, let's say, uh, and also understand the plan and like that has underlying condition better before, and, and then I'm trying to push for TF and the weekend. It's over the weekends. Consider uh, novel ways of Anyone else? Comments? No. Okay. All right. So, so just a reminder that the original TDF FTC bone density analyses sort of showed that there was about a 1% loss in bone mineral density at the hip and the spine by one year on TDF-FTC. And that was you know, statistically different from placebo, but there were no fractures in those early studies. So we sort of struggled with what does this mean clinically? But remember, a lot of these early studies were plagued by poor adherence. And so what would the bone mineral density loss look like in these healthy HIV on an uninfected individuals if they were taking it as prescribed seven days a week. And in particular, if you think who's most at risk for acquiring HIV in 2019, it's youth, right? And youth are still accruing bone mineral density until age 25 approximately. And what are the implications if you stunt bone mineral density acquisition during youth, right? We have data at this point that shows that if you lose this 1% or whatever it is, a bone mineral density on TDF-FTC, and then you stop the TDF-FTC, you revert to the previous level of bone mineralization after six months of being off it. So that's reassuring. 
But what happens if you're still accruing your bone mineral density and you stunt that? Is that something that is recoverable? Um, there are now some data from the ATN network that does suggest that, um, that you do, again, after about six months, but it's something that I think we still have a fair bit of pause about. Um, and, uh, you know, again, if you look by adherence category, um, and, you know, this, this is an analysis of the IPREX DEXA sub-study that parses the participants into three groups. They were randomized to the active drug, and they were actually taking it at a, at, a, at a rate that you would expect to get protection, and that's sort of the blue bars here. Then they actually were randomized to the active drug, but they weren't really taking it, and that's the gray bars. And then they were randomized to the placebo, and that's the red bars. And you can see what happened to um, the percent change in bone mineral density um, in each of those groups. And clearly people who took it better, more regularly had the greater changes in the bone mineral density. Um, and, uh, and so there's a dose response relationship here that I think we're all concerned about. And here are the data um, from uh, the, the IPRAC study that shows that if you stop the drug, you will get back to your baseline um, of bone mineral density um, six months approximately after um, you, uh, you stop the drug. So that's reassuring. The vitamin D and calcium study, I appreciate Joe's point and Judy's point that this guy already has osteoporosis and you probably don't want to take the risk of a hit. But um, I, I, the reason this sort of comes up, right, is, is because we know that in HIV-infected patients, right, there was an ACTG study, 5280, that took HIV-infected patients who are taking a TDF, FTC, and mostly a favorins-containing regimen um, that were then randomized to either calcium and vitamin D supplementation or a placebo. And they showed that you can mitigate the bone mineral density loss that would be associated with that regimen by 50% by supplementing uh, with calcium and vitamin D. So it's a, certainly a reasonable question. Could the same thing be tried um, in the prep space? And we actually don't have great data about this. But um, again, a study that Eric's involved with, the CCTG595 study, did a case control sort of study where um, they actually gave vitamin D, they didn't give calcium in this study, um, 4,000 units a day and compared markers of bone turnover in those participants compared with prep-taking participants who did not receive that. It wasn't a placebo-controlled study. And they showed um, bone turnover marker changes that would suggest less risk of bone mineral density loss using P1NP. Now, that is not DEXA data. This is not clinical outcome data. This is a small study. But if you have someone who really is hell-bent on taking TDF FTC prep, and they, you are concerned about exacerbating some sort of low bone mineral density con condition, this is something that would not be unreasonable to do. The caveat, of course, is you're asking them to take additional medications, and adherence is a big challenge anyway. So particularly for youth, where you're perhaps most concerned about this, is this really a useful intervention? It's a good question, right? And some people are playing around with, can you do like 50,000 units of vitamin D once a month? And then you, you can do it as sort of directly observed therapy or something like that. And you don't have to worry about it being a daily adherence thing. So it's something to think about. This is far from definitive. This isn't going to be in any of the guidelines anytime soon. Um, and that's for two reasons. Number one, the data isn't that compelling. But number two, again, without clinical fractures in the original data sets, it's hard to sort of convince people that this is a public health crisis 
that warrants recommendations in the guidelines, which makes it sort of a, more of a nuanced kind of thing that we're left to struggle to deal with. These are the bone mineral density comparisons in the DISCOVER trial, right? Um, and, you know, to Joe's point, right, in the, in the, in the TAF um, FTC arm, we had small, non-statistically significant increases um, in bone mineral density compared to some statistically significant decreases in the TDF FTC arm, again, suggesting that if there are regulatory approvals and that payers decide that this is, this is worth supporting, that, that this could be a reasonable solution. Um, some people did um, wonder about the 211 option and its bone um, sort of uh, sort of comparative bone safety. We don't have data about that, so we would be extrapolating from from the renal safety data and sort of guessing. But now it, uh, the point that Joe keeps coming back to is these infrequent partnerships, right? Because 211 dosing, right? That's four doses of TDF FTC every time you use it. So how infrequently would someone have to be having sex and using that regimen to have it actually be less than the kind of toxicity that you're getting from attempts to use it on a daily basis? It would have to be pretty infrequent. So I'm not all that bullish on that sort of idea in this particular case, but it is something to consider. Okay, a kiss is a terrible thing to waste. Um, if anybody, including Dr. Sag, who's up here, can name the Broadway musical that that is the title of a song from, I will be very impressed and you get a prize of some sort. See me afterwards. Dr. Sag. Urine Town. Stump the Stars. No, it's not Urine Town. Okay, just before we move on. So, Urine Town was a Broadway musical. My mother called me up one time, said, there's a new Broadway musical, do you want to go? It's called You're in Town. I said, mom, it's called You're in Town. Oh, piss. Okay, a kiss is a terrible thing to waste. 28-year-old man referred to your clinic for prep. He was diagnosed with obesity, hypertension, sleep apnea, underwent a gastric bypass uh, six months ago. Since the surgery, he's been eating clean, and he takes several, several um, vitamin supplements as per the direction of his bariatric surgeon, and he wants to go on prep. You say to him, true story. I just can't win. The answer to the question was the little known Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Whistle Down the Wind. Look it up. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, the, uh, almost half said, don't mess with Texas, just go with TDF FTC. 7% said double dose daily oral TDF FTC. 10% wanted to do the on-demand thing. 18% um, went with, you know, the, the new kid on the block. And 18% said something else. Dr. Sag. I don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would probably go with either TDF FTC or TAF FTC. I would not double the dose. I wouldn't be comfortable with that. And I'm not, if you're worried about absorption, the two on one may fail. So somewhere between one and four, but I don't know. 
Okay. Anyone else have an opinion? Dr. Iran looks like he has an well, opinion. I know what I would do, but I, because into the sugar will get the drug levels for me. It's always nice to have, you know, the pharmacologist next door who can just run the drug levels for you. Um, yes. Um, so, so you know, this was interesting because this really was a clinical scenario that came up. This kid walked into my clinic and he had had a gastric bypass surgery and said, you know, I have this malabsorption syndrome and I take all these vitamins so I don't get sick from these vitamin deficiencies, but I'm going, I'm going to go on prep whether you give it to me or not, how are we going to do this? And I was like, well, I'd much rather do it with you than against you. So we sort of had to figure it out, right? So just to remind people, right, there's two sorts of major categories of bariatric surgical procedures, right? The first is a gastric bypass where you sort of, um, you, know, cr you know, basically create a small gastric pouch that, that where the esophagus ends and you reconnect um, the jejunum directly there. And, and, and so the rest of the stomach and all of its sort of secretory contents sort of becomes a blind-ended pouch that just dumps into the distal jejunum. But the sleeve, which is what this guy had, um, is, is sort of a carving out of, you know, to make essentially um, a, a sort of similarly sized conduit from the esophagus into, into small intestine um, and leaves the removed portion of the of stomach completely out of the picture. And this can cause malabsorption syndrome. And so you would be concerned about antiretrovirals. So I, I kind of scoured the literature and I checked in with our pharma partners at the company that, that makes this product. And 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 they said, really, I wouldn't know about this study. I did, you know, thanks for finding that. Um, um, and and this was um, in four HIV infected individuals um, who had had a sleeve gastrectomy, and they did careful TDF um, uh, PK. And and the bottom line was at at, a, at about a month after the um, the gastrectomy, um, uh, the area under the curve and the Cmax were significantly decreased. Um, but, um, but by, by 12 months after, um, the, it had returned to preoperative levels. Okay. So you went to this dip over the first sort of six months or so, and then it returned to normal levels, um, by 12 months, which suggested that really it was that first period post-surgical where you would be most vulnerable and most concerned. Um, and, uh, and, and there were no data in the HIV uninfected space. Um, I, I did also find a 10 patient case series of double dose TDF, one of which resulted in a Fanconi's-like syndrome. So I agree with Mike that that sort of made me feel better that I didn't want to even try that, even for the first 12 months kind of um, uh, uh, time frame. Um, so, so what I did was I ended up just giving him daily TDF FTC. He, it turned out he was six months from the procedure at that point. So it was just really a six month time period that I was most worried about. And I just encouraged him to use condoms as much as he was able to do so for that period. Cause I wasn't sure about the efficacy. I did try to send it to a colleague who had the ability to do pharmacology, but for various sort of complexities of shipping samples reasons. It wasn't as straightforward as walking next door might be for, for you at UNC, Joe. So, um, so, you know, it seems to have worked out. He's still HIV negative um, uh, and, uh, and, and was having a fair bit of, of exposure. So, so that seems to have worked out with an N of one. Okay. So, so there, isn't there some thought though that some of the protection, why it's so effective and 
and men who have sex with men, especially anal sex, is that actually unabsorbed uh, TDF-FTC may account for the higher rectal concentration. So so it's 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 certainly been tossed around as a theory. Um, I, I I don't know that we really have validated data to support that, right? I think most people still think that it's a combination of both plasma levels and tissue concentrations of of the drug and its metabolites. So I, I don't think we know, and I, I would be loath to rely on that, um, right? I mean, the same way. Um, you know, we, we, you know, in, in one of our clinical trials, I, I think I shared this, this anecdote with you. We had, we were doing, um, this was the Moraviroc prep study that we were doing. And we had a participant decide that because they had a rectal exposure, they were going to insert their study products rectally, um, rather than to get orally with that thought in mind. And, and I, so we did take a look at the data at that point. And again, this particular preparation. And, and you know, I, I think we don't have data to support it, Mike. Two quick things. You could use cabotegravir if it were available, which is not, but you could have put them on study. Second question is, what was the musical that that title came from? What was the musical that the kiss? It was Whistle Down the Wind. The audience was listening, Mike. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> I, was, I was too upset. Whistle Down the Wind. It, it, it opened in Washington, D.C. after a London run and then never made it to Broadway. But find it on iTunes. Okay. 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 Um, okay. Uh, anything else? Okay. Uh, great. So it is a dangerous world out there. True statement. Um, a 55-year-old man comes in, uh, and, and Susan, Susan's going to be mad at me because all these cases are about men, and I'm sorry. They, they are, and they, they shouldn't be, and I apologize. Um, 55-year-old man comes in regularly for PrEP follow-up, and all, by all indications, he is adherent to his daily PrEP. His four to five male sexual partners per month, inconsistent condom use, he is a history of recurrent rectal chlamydia. And every time you come in, you diagnose him with rectal chlamydia and you treat it, you document clearance. So you're sure your treatment is working because he's had this so many times, he wanted to make sure that it was actual clearance um, and that he was not being inappropriately treated because he trusted his provider very well. Okay. Um, and you have confirmed the treatment and the clearance. So... You say to him about his ongoing prep use. This late in the day, you need a laugh, right? How do you gargle rectally? <laughs> so many things to say. <laughs> okay. Um, so, oh, wow. We have some fans of doxycycline prep in the room. That's impressive. Um, okay, we're going to talk about that. Um, we, we, we have 20, you know, fifth of you said this is an occupational hazard of condomless sex. That is a term, that is a phrase that I've been known to use with, with, with patients. Um, 21% of you liked the post-coital doxycycline, 
um, and 9% of you liked Listerine. Um, <laughs> so, some of you are wondering what's with America grow up, use a condom. So, you know, and many of you know that there's been a lot of controversy around PrEP in general, right? Um, and, and in Los Angeles, where, where I lived, um, this was a billboard that went up right after the FDA approval um, of, of PrEP. So um, th I, I thought that was cute. Um, so um, I, I always include that in, in my talks to remind people that, that it is not a slam dunk for everyone that PrEP is a good intervention all around. And the increase in bacterial STIs is often impugned as being related to increases in condomless sex, possibly attributable to pre-exposure prophylaxis use. So, whoops. Um, yeah, question there. What about just making sure the Treating partner, absolutely an important intervention, except it's not the same partner every time. So, okay. yes. Okay, uh, anyone want to weigh in from the panel? What do you like? I bet you're going to show us some data from France. <laughs> Just guessing. All right. That, that's Mike Sag saying, get on with it. Okay. Um, so um, I do think doxycycline um, for PEP or PrEP of STIs is something that is getting a lot of interest. The data at this point is all for post-exposure prophylaxis. This was um, a, a sub-study of the Ipergay study, which was that French and Canadian 211 PrEP study. Um, what Jean-Michel Molina and his team did was they randomized these MSM in France and Canada to either doxycycline or nothing. And the doxycycline was dosed as a double dose, 200 milligrams, um, post-condomless anal intercourse up to a maximum of three doses in one week. Okay, It was not placebo-controlled. It was do it or you're not getting it. And these are the results. And so fascinatingly, 70% reduction in cumulative incidence of chlamydia and syphilis. No change in cumulative incidence of gonorrhea, right? So it's hard, it's hard to argue with those outcomes in people with recurrent rectal infections like this, right? Um, what it was not assessed and sort of the big questions is what are the effects going to be on antimicrobial resistance? What are the effects going to be on the microbiome of, of taking something more chronically? Um, and, you know, what about the toxicity? And, and, you know, I think those are all really important questions, but, it, you know, um, no one needs to raise their hand, but think in your head, how many of you or how many of you have friends who took doxycycline or minocycline as teenagers fairly regularly for acne? Right, so we've done this um, with a fairly good safety profile. So I'm hopeful that this might be a useful intervention. Other people have been very interested in a pre-exposure approach with doxycycline, sort of daily doxycycline um, in a, so the same, you know, with the TDF-FTC. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about that because if you can dose it post, why? do it if, if it's unnecessary, um, especially if you're gonna cap it at sort of six doses or you know six doses total in three batches a week. Um, and, and so there are some ongoing studies that are evaluating both a pre and expo post exposure dosing of doxycycline and its effect on the microbiome and looking at some correlates of antimicrobial resistance. So I do think this is really interesting um, and we certainly need better interventions um, to prevent bacterial STIs. Right. And I'm, I'm not going to get into 
hear, you know, the, the sort of almost biblical debate about, you know, the, the chicken and egg cycle of PrEP and condomless sex and bacterial STIs. And um, because I, I think it's, it's very easy to get off track with that. I think bacterial STIs are increasing and we have an epidemic. True. PrEP use is being scaled up. True. Um, we need better interventions to prevent STIs, and PrEP seems to work very well to prevent HIV when used as directed. True. Yes. Um, uh, and, and I think it's sort of not really super productive to sort of get into sort of punching matches with people about what's causing what, because it's very difficult to show causality. Um, so, so if it's okay with everyone, I'm going to sort of leave it there. Um, I do think that there's a fascinating modeling paper from the CDC that came out that shows that um, if um, uh, every three months when STI, uh, when HIV testing is checked as is routine and prep management, um, STI testing is done and you treat any incident um, STIs, um, you can do early interruption of the, of the infection cycle and in mathematical models, um, you would then be able to extinguish this bacterial STI epidemic that we're having. So I like to focus on things that we can do proactively about the STI epidemic rather than, um, than finger pointing, if that's okay. But let's come back to Listerine. Um, because there, there are some fascinating studies and, and um, uh, this was a study that compared um, a saline gargle to Listerine gargle, um, and it was total care and cool mint, and that's important. Um, uh, and someone else, someone's asked me if Colgate works, and you know that wasn't studied, so I don't know. But basically, um, Listerine um, compared to a saline gargle essentially eradicated gonorrheal colonization of the oropharynx. Now you're going to say to me, this guy had rectal disease and he had chlamydia, so why are you talking about that? Well, you know, um, as we know, most pharyngeal infections of both gonorrhea and less frequently chlamydia um, are asymptomatic, right? And it's probably um, a big source of ongoing transmission um, and a reservoir of these sexually transmitted infections. So if you can eradicate a reservoir on some sort of regular basis, particularly with such an easy to deploy intervention, why not? Right. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. Right. You can use something that feels caustic when you use it. And it turns out it is caustic <laughs> to the bacteria. Um, so I just think this is interesting. You know, I did put it on that list um, because it was amusing. But um, but there are there is some science there. OK. Um, I, OK. So anyway, last last case. Um, positively frightening. Okay, a 60-year-old man returned for PrEP follow-up. He's been on TDF-FTC daily for two years with excellent adherence. His seven male sexual partners in the past month, he engages in oral insert of an anal sex, um, consistently uses condoms. That's important. Um, he, uh, his last HIV testing and STI testing three months ago was negative, and now he comes in and he has two two different samples, reactive fourth generation laboratory-based assays that you do in the office, but the confirmatory immunofluorescence assay is negative. Um, you send an RNA and it's negative, not detected, not just below the limit of quantitation. You've got a normal CD4 and CD8 ratio. And because you have you know, someone down the hall who can do this for you, 
um, a, a DNA test uh, on whole blood is negative. So what's his status and should he continue prep? the very end I will not abandon you my precious friend so try and stand the time oh god send a flare up in the sky there it is try to burn a torch and try to build a bonfire Okay, that, that was whistled down the wind also. Okay, um, so okay, so most of you said it's unclear if he's infected, hold prep and retest in four weeks time. 27% um, said likely false positive, use a different platform while continuing prep. Um, and then a couple of other folks, including I have a headache, stop asking me hard questions. Dan, what do you think? Basically, it's someone in very, very early infection who um, um, has not yet seen COVID and has not a response. It's clear that that's the case. Um, there are cases where the standard answer. Um, so, some version of death during that period of time. Oh, sorry, is this working now? So um, I think uh, um, I would say in, in, in rare cases, the, the standard HIV testing approaches fail to give a definitive answer. While they're outstanding quality assays, uh, they're not 100% clear in, in rare instances. And in that setting, then I would, uh, I, I would generate more data. So I would, and uh, uh, generation of more data uh, over a period of time, uh, I think will give an answer. So, so let me let me push you all a little bit there. Say, okay, we need more information, but are we leaving him on TDF FTC? Are we stopping it, or are we doing something else like intensifying it to a fully suppressive regimen? Well, I wouldn't intensify it unless uh, there's a definitive diagnosis. Um, I think one could argue, uh, uh, I think it would largely be individualized. If he continues to have a high numbers of exposures, then one could argue to keep him on it. Uh, I think uh, uh, taking him off it and seeing what happens would be more diagnostic. Uh, but I think that that would, that would really be a conversation with the patient and it would, it would largely be dependent on uh, ongoing exposures at that time. Other Mike. opinions? Or Eric? So I have trouble reconciling that, that he has that he's infected based on the results because the fourth generation assay is either going to test for an antibody or an antigen all right and 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 it comes together and the the um the antibody test the specialized antibody test is negative so probably not that the hiv rna test should be strongly positive by the time the antigen is detected so that's negative then oh on top of this you've got an hiv dna it's also negative, so there's no reservoir that you can detect. So I'm not sure that he's infected. All that being said, if, if I weren't a 1,000% sure, 
you emphasize the fact that he uses condoms regularly. That was a hint. So if you want to be absolutely, absolutely sure, you give him a four-week hiatus off of PrEP. You say, you really have to use condoms now. And then come back and see me in four weeks of repeat, but I don't think you're infected. Yeah, and I would just supplement, well, I would just supplement that with, I do think you need to take into consideration how sincere he is with his use of condoms or not use of condoms, meaning what is his ongoing risk over the next four weeks if you did stop, and, and how consistent is he with his PrEP. Again, all of that will give you a sense as to the pretest likelihood as to whether this sort of unusual test result is real or a false positive. Yes? It wasn't a rapid, you said, that was false positive. No, laboratory-based. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, um, so, so these are all really important points, and this is actually, for me, one of the most vexing issues in PrEP in 2019, um, right? Because what has been shown is that in this, from the randomized trials, being on some sort of ARV-based pre-exposure prophylaxis delays the, 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 it delays viremia, it delays antibody responses, and it really muddies um, diagnostics. And you can actually have somebody who has these evanescent and discordant testing results that don't appear to make sense with negative nucleic acid tests because they're partially suppressed by the ongoing ARV therapy, and it's extremely difficult to tease out what the real situation is. So we, we have um, all sorts of reasons for a potential false positive test if we think that's what it is. There could be cross-reaction with our antibodies. As Dan mentioned, this is an extremely sensitive and specific test, but now that you're doing it repeatedly, depending on their pretest probability, you're going to get false positives, right? Um, and there could be problems with the test being conducted right? The, re the results could be read by the lab later than actually is indicated. There could be overinterpretation of difficult results, particularly with rapid, um, uh, with rapid testing, expired test kits. Let's take the situation for a brief moment before we come back to this diagnostics issue. If, as Eric suggested, we tease out, and let's say we had biologics that suggest that he's really taking TDF-FTC daily, does PrEP ever fail? Is it still possible that this is real? The answer is yes. There are six cases in the literature that suggest that people have acquired HIV even with reliable biomarkers of adherence. One of them I actually think was um, sort of someone who went on PrEP when they were already diagnosed. So let's pretend that there are five cases in the literature. Four of them are attributable to, and I think um, Dr. Iran mentioned this in a talk earlier, to transmission of multidrug resistant virus. It's circulating, it's out there, it's rare, but it happens. The fact that this is still a case report in 2019 tells you exactly how rare it is. But there's one case, it's the Dutch case that's up here from Amsterdam, the third one, um, where someone seroconverted with wild type virus. And this is what I like to think of, this is how I can conceptualize it, as the inoculum effect, right? When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, they had levees, right, to protect against flooding in the city. But with the force of Hurricane Katrina, there was no levee on the planet that was going to prevent the disaster that happened from the rise in floodwaters, right? So there is no per biomedical prevention strategy that is going to be 100% perfect against a massive inoculum onslaught, right? This individual was reporting 50 to 75 receptive anal intercourse partners over a short period of time, the majority of whom... Um, were HIV infected, and there were a number of ulcerative STIs that were diagnosed concomitantly. 
So that sort of exposure onslaught, it's going to be very difficult to imagine any biomedical prevention strategy that's going to be able to withstand that, right? So it's not entirely a surprise that it happened. Again, one case in the literature, right? I think that, again, represents the robustness of TDF-FTC prep against HIV um, in the context of rectal exposure, that we have one documented case of this phenomenon in the literature. I'm sure there'll be others, but it's very rare. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind also, but that particular patient pro provided um, another diagnostic dilemma because again, um, for a variety of potential reasons, whether he had localized sort of rectal infection that then disseminated when he was actually taken off his drugs to clarify um, uh, his, his status or not, we'll never know because the big challenge of that intermediate um, strategy of deciding you're going to stop the PrEP and retest after three to four weeks is in a high risk participant, you leave a window of opportunity for them to then acquire HIV, right? And, and as Eric was saying, right, you really need to encourage someone to leverage all available protective strategies when you're doing that. But, right, but the majority of people didn't go on PrEP in the first place because they love condoms. Right. And, and let's be honest, has any of you had a patient ever come into your clinic and said, condoms are awesome. I love them. No. Right. So people are looking for alternatives to that prevention strategy. So I do worry about that. That certainly is a very clean and in, um, in a test tube um, is, is the best way to get clarity on the clinical situation. But it doesn't come without significant clinical risk. So I agree with those of you that said you really need to have a conversation with the patient about how to best protect themselves if you're going to do that. The decision about whether or not these tests warrant going on a fully suppressive antiretroviral therapy is an amazingly geographic one. If you go to Thailand, they will tell you that you must not miss an opportunity to treat immediately the possibility of an extremely early HIV infection. And someone like this would go on lifelong triple drug suppressive therapy, or they'd be entered in a cohort where they could be studied of a treatment interruption at some point in an extremely carefully monitored setting. We probably would not do that here because you're committing someone to lifelong treatment with three drugs when your real suspicion based on its history of condom use and, and, and PrEP adherence is that this is a false positive. Right, so it seems to me that your options are that you either continue um, uh, and retest or um, you stop um, and, and get additional information three to four weeks off. And um, I will leave you with these data that PrEP indeed del does delay seroconversion. Um, it reduces your RNA potentially even to undetectable levels. Um, and it's really complicated and it's only going to get more complicated as we get um, agents that have longer both intracellular and systemic half-lives for pre-exposure prophylaxis, because if long-acting cabotegravir does turn out to be effective and safe and gets approved, what happens if you try to stop it and they have an injectable on board? It gets even more complicated. So the three options, stop, retest after three to four weeks, ultimate care to make sure someone is protecting themselves that, during that period, or continue, see the evolution. Most likely it's a false positive if you believe the story. I'll stop there, thanks so much. Happy to answer any questions.
let me just see here the questions we had. Uh, some recent fourth generations say negative will give a number. Yeah, so interestingly, right, the majority of the package inserts for fourth generation tests do not allow disclosure of the signal to cutoff ratio. Um, the Abbott Architect is the only one that I believe that does allow that to happen. And it depends on your lab. If they'll give you that information, the cutoff is usually one. Most people will say if the signal to cutoff ratio is greater than 10, that that should be considered much more definitive. And if it's in the intervening area between one and 10, it's much more difficult to interpret. But again, that's it's not FDA approved or cleared for that indication. So I'd be reluctant to rely on that. Um, any guidance on the use of benefit of HPV vaccine in patients greater than 26 years old, given the recent FDA approval to 45 years? Yes, I, I actually think that anybody who is having condomless sex um, who meets the requirements uh, probably could benefit from it. Um, the problem is getting a lot of insurances to pay for it. A lot of them have not revised their payment schemes. So we've had a lot of people come back saying that it was rejected um, by their insurance companies. So I think if resources were not an issue, absolutely. Um, IDHIV society seems encouraging, uh, encouraging promiscuous sex. Um, I don't know about that. I think um, it's very much a harm reduction strategy. Um, I think you have to meet people where they are. We're not having 35,000 new HIV infections in the United States because people are effectively using the prevention strategies that we have. Um, and we, I think we need to approach this in a harm reduction kind of way. Um, and you know, I think something that is reducing HIV incidence um, in cities that are able to implement it is, is very encouraging. Um, is cystatin C an appropriate lab test? Serum creatinine might be effectively elevated. Guidance on how to manage mycoplasma genitalium. Um, so let me just answer the, 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 the lab test question for uh, tests that were used in the Discover uh, study. Those are not tests that we routinely use um, in clinical management. Um, and I would just use crea uh, serum creatinine um, and urinalysis as, as guidance. Um, I'm not sure that I would uh, 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 use the, the more sensitive uh, measures on a, any sort of routine basis. Um, how do you counsel patients with the relic of efficacy of on-demand versus daily TDF-FTC? Um, it's a great question. The 211 strategy um, has been shown to be effective um, you know, in a randomized trial. You can't refute that. It clearly works. I don't, don't claim to understand how it works. And I say that because when they did rectal biopsies rapidly after administration of the double dose of the TDF-FTC in that study, um, the TDF metabolites didn't show up for 24 hours after the double dose. So I'm not sure I understand it, but the result is sort of irrefutable. So for me, I counsel people to take it as daily as they're able to do so. And if they want to try to be more parsimonious with their dosing, I encourage them to not try and target actual sexual activity and just get it in as often as they can, because I think probably the majority of the protective effect of 211 dosing is cumulative rather than acute. That's my personal opinion. We really don't have enough data to answer it though. What are your opinions on using TDF-FTC together with Depo-Provera with regards to bone mineral density? especially in a young woman. 
I have no experience with that. Um, does the time for adequate prep uptake change if a vagina has been surgically created? That is a great question, and no one knows the answer to that question. Probably has a lot to do with what a neo-vagina is created with, whether it's um, ilio or colonic tissue, or whether it's scrotal tissue, but those data are sorely needed for trans individuals, and we don't have them. And that was the last question, but thank you all very much. Well, before we close, let me thank you all for coming and to thank all the speakers. I think this was a great session and uh, very, very nice, very nice speaking, very nice discussions today. <laughs>